Media Focus with Paul Blanchard. This week, the Brooks Newmark sexting. The Conservative minister resigned recently after sending explicit pictures to an undercover journalist. But was the sting in the public interest? Fairness in recruiting journalists. The Spectator no longer asks job applicants for their education history, supposedly to give a better chance to state-educated applicants. Is this the fairest way to hire? And the FM switchover. The government has signalled its intention to switch off FM as soon as 2017. Is this too soon? And do the public know enough about it? And as usual, we're joined by two of the media's best and brightest. Molly Goodfellow is a journalism apprentice at the Evening Standard newspaper. And Michael Hill is managing director of Radio Player. Media Focus. So, first up, was the Brooks Newmark sting in the public interest. We seem to have been here before. An MP gets caught sending explicit pictures to an undercover journalist posing as a young female activist. A number have questioned, though, whether the sting was in the public interest. The Sunday Mirror has since defended its decision to print the story, saying Newmark had security clearance and was involved in an initiative to get women into politics. Michael, do you think this was a legitimate story? It was certainly a legitimate story, but was it in the public interest? Uh, I don't believe so. I mean, because public interest does not just mean of interest to the public. There are some very strict rules around what defines in the public interest. And just to walk through the the steps here that you'd have to justify, um, I've got the uh, code in front of me, which is the the code that editors should uh, live or die by. And uh, here we're engaging in misrepresentation or subterfuge, because that's what the uh, reporter did in order to obtain the story. Now, usually that's a bad thing to do, but you can do it if it's in the public interest. So then you turn to the next clause, which defines the public interest. And presumably what the Mirror are quoting here is the clause that says it's in the public interest to prevent the public from being misled because this Tory MP was involved in women's groups and attracting women into politics. So what? But what I would question is... What he did was he sent a picture of his knob to a woman. That was clearly an idiotic thing to do. But was he actually misleading anyone in his life having done that? And I would argue no. So I don't think it was uh, in the public interest. Molly, these things are very difficult to kind of cross the line. What's your view? Um, I think it's really a two-part issue. You've got the fact that Brooks Newmark is married and he has a wife and his children, and sending pictures of his knob. I love that word, by the way. I restricted a kind of... I tried to hide a cheeky, childish grin as you said that. I think (laughs) also I love the detail that it was uh, peeking out of some Paisley Paisley pyjamas. Paisley, Marks Sparks. TMI. Uh, Sorry, Molly, carry on. I think, yeah, the fact he has a wife, he has children, and he was sending pictures of his private parts to a woman obviously shows that there's something wrong with his loyalty, which... You know, could be argued that we would want to know about if he is. I think he was the minister for civil society. I'm not sure how civil or. But surely his marriage. I mean, I'm not defending no, the no, guy, no. but isn't his this marriage is my his next private point. affair? His marriage is his private life, and I think I've written about this when the story came out. I think whether or not in this issue, Brooks Newmark was this issue was in the public interest because of the way the Mirror broke the story that part's kind of irrelevant because the way that they did it, in my opinion, was completely immoral. The woman whose pictures they used gave no consent for their images being used. Um, and we I think, should tell our listeners that don't know that the undercover reporter was in fact a bloke, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, his name was um, Alex Wickham. And yeah, he, he works for Paul Stain's Gita Fox. Yes, he does. Um, so these, I think one of the women was called 
Malin and she was a Swedish model and she had no idea she'd never spoken to Alex Wickham, nobody at the mirror, she'd never spoken to Brooks Newmark. And she gave a quote to a Swedish publication saying all of a sudden she had people calling her, texting her, asking her, you know, what is going on? You've been sending these texts to an MP. And of course she hadn't. So I think it was probably a dick move, uh, no pun the pun, <laughs> for Brooks Newmark to well, send you, that picture. It, but, was, it was clearly foolish, but I think my first question is, they were on a bit of a fishing expedition, really, weren't they? I mean, they contacted yeah. nearly mm, well over half a dozen MPs, only. some of which weren't even in a relationship with anyone. And Do you this think that's is, probably right, Mike? And that's another reason why I don't believe it's in the public interest, because uh, there is a clause uh, in another clause in the section that defines the public interest. Whenever the public interest is invoked, the regulator will require editors to demonstrate fully that they reasonably believe that publication or journalistic activity undertaken with a view to publication would be in the public interest, and how and with whom that was established at the time. In other words, you have to have a very serious, high-level editorial conversation in the newsroom before you start the subterfuge Mm. um, to agree that what you are doing is in the public interest. Molly, to to play devil's advocate then, uh, if if you look at what the the Guido Fox's website have said, they've said that clearly this man is involved in grassroots organisations encouraging women into politics. They heard a rumour that several MPs were being a, a bit sleazy and he wanted to uh, show that this is the case. I mean, in a sense, there is a there is a case to be made that it's arguable. I mean, what middle... I, I'm not a middle-aged man. I claim not to speak to middle-aged man. But what middle-aged man wouldn't want the attention of a young, pretty girl pretending to be interested in his job? Well, only one that was incredibly gullible. Anyway. Yeah, of I mean, course. the guy's in his late fifties. She claimed to be thirty years younger. I mean, what arrogance to assume that someone would genuinely be uh, would be you know, interested in you. Or foolishness, I suppose. Maybe well, he, he was flattered. That he, he he used the word fool to describe himself. Um, so I think we've established the guy's an idiot for doing it. An idiot, of course, and his marriage is a matter for him, but is there a strong enough public interest test? I mean, are we all unanimous that it's a, that it's a no on this one? Well, Not- as, as I say, I don't believe that there is uh, a public interest here because it seemed like a fishing expedition, i.e. it wasn't fully argued through in the newsroom at the time. And because, you know, it's not just things that are of interest to the public, you have to demonstrate the public interest, and that means you have to show that the public has been prevented from being misled. Uh, And I don't believe that's happened here. Mike, do you think there's an issue here just finally in terms of, in effect, being a speculative sting done by a freelance journalist, which the Mirror then bought? Uh, It's not as even if they were onto some evil minister who's doing dastardly deeds behind the scene and set out to to prove that he was a wrong. And this was something that they just got presented to them as a fait accompli and said, do you want to buy it off us? Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong in that per se. There still needs to be the ability for freelance journalists to pursue stories. But in this case, it looks like they pursued several men in the Tory party and elsewhere uh, before they landed on on one who was idiotic enough to comply. And then... Also, it looks like they offered it to several papers who refused it before they arrived at the Sunday Mirror. So I think there's nothing wrong in principle with freelance um, journalistic inquiry like that. But it does look here like it was a bit of a commodity that they were trying to flog. Agreed. Well, next up, how should newspapers recruit talented young reporters? Earlier this year, The Spectator announced a new policy of not asking job applicants for their education details. This was in response to a new survey which found that 43% of newspaper columnists went to fee-paying schools. Molly's the journalism apprentice at the Evening Standard. What do you think about The Spectator's policy and do you think it is the fairest way to recruit? 
Um, I think it's quite a contentious issue. I did not go to private school. I've never been to a private school. State educated. Yeah, good. Not, Same been, here. not been to university. We'll show them. Exactly. <laughs> but I think the way that the journalism industry has changed, it's not just about whether you went to private school or not. A lot of the publications are based in London now, which is very expensive to live in, as I don't know whether either of you live in London, but it's quite painful to try and survive. The way that people get into journalism these days is by slogging through unpaid internships, which, you know, if you do not come from a very privileged background, is not always going to be the option for you. You're not always going to have that option. So, yeah, I think that private education isn't the whole of the issue. I think there are many other issues that feed into the privilege problem that I think we have within journalism. So it's very much a who-you-know industry and you find that a lot of people know each other, their families know each other, and that's an in for a lot of people. Another in for people is unpaid internships, which you can only undertake if you have that safety net of family who have money. Yeah, if you don't have a, if you can't, yeah. if you don't have family with money or you don't have the connections, then where's the first rung on the ladder going to exactly. come from? Exactly. And increasingly, you can't even get a degree unless you've got money, because um, unless you take out a grant and, you're, and you've got huge debts for the rest of your life. Because you now have to pay for tuition fees, whereas um, when I was growing up, when I was at university, I got uh, all my tuition fees paid, which meant that it was much easier for um, people of limited means to access those universities. So, Mike, do you think that journalism is just reflective of the the wider life in business, as it were, that people that go to fee-paying schools have um, you know, better chances overall? And do you think the spectators, you know, it's an admirable thing that they're doing to try and stop this? I think it is. I think it's a brilliant thing. I mean, I think it's what's really interesting is to ask, why should we try to redress the balance? And there are two very obvious reasons. One is that it's just the right thing to do. Businesses should reflect society in their makeup. It's the fair thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Um, that's a very simple thing to say, but it's worth stating. The second one is is also interesting, and that is that I think it's um, there's quite a lot of evidence that many businesses are more successful if they have a more diverse workforce. And I don't just mean diverse in terms of gender or race. I mean class as well, which is mm. quite a hard thing to define. But that's what we're talking about here, effectively. And I've had a lot of experience um, hiring people for the BBC, for example, um, where... You look at a set of application forms and, uh, you know, some of the details required on those application forms are shortcuts for working out whether the person's going to cock up or not. And if they cock up, it's up to you because you're the boss. Mm. But you don't want them to cock up, so you hire them safe. And hiring them safe often means, oh, that guy went to Oxford, I'll have him. It's a, it's a risk aversion, as it were. It no is. one ever got fired for buying IBM. Absolutely. Mm. I remember one guy I hired into the BBC was very standout from the rest of the people on the interview. Uh, very standout, very different, full of ideas, really fiery guy in the interview. Kind of the other two BBC people who were interviewing with me, alongside me, were quite taken aback by him, actually. I argued strongly that we should go for him because he was very different from anyone we had at that moment and anyone else that we'd seen that day. We hired him. After we hired him, he told me it was his 14th job application to the BBC. Uh, and he was very grateful for having been hired on the uh, on the 14th time. He is one of the most effective operators in that corporation. He's been there now for many years, and he's brilliant. So I'm very, very chuffed that I went against my kind of safety instincts mm. and went for someone 
who didn't go to a top university, didn't go to a top school and had a very different outlook on life. It's interesting, Mike, because I, I placed one of my clients on Question Time and uh, they had two interviews. And that, what fascinated me about the process is what I thought once they'd passed the first interview, they'd get on. But the producer was telling me that they, they can't do that with just one person because it puts too much pressure on that person to play safe. If they think they'd be really good, but if something goes wrong on air because there's only five people on the panel... Mm. Everyone always has a tendency to play safe. They think, well, I think he could be good or she, but on the other hand, I'm not quite sure, so I'll play safe and say no. Whereas if you have two people to do it, that encourages some considered risk-taking mm. and means that you know two people think that he or she would be a very good panellist. So I think you're right. that There's nothing wrong with playing safe in a sense, but you never advance an organisation, do you, if you're just hiring the same people? Particularly if your organisation is involved in, in creativity. So like the BBC, making radio and TV programmes and online content, or a newspaper, for example. How are you going to reflect the diversity of the licence fee payers in the UK, BBC, Mm. if you aren't made up in the same way? If you're all posh Oxbridge blokes, how are you going to maintain your universal appeal to the licence fee payers who are not all posh Oxbridge blokes? Molly, tell us about the apprenticeship at the Evening Standard. Because when you think of an apprentice, you know, in the kind of yeah. lazy middle class way that I am, you think of someone carrying bricks on a building site or polishing a lathe or something in a, <laughs> you know, in, a, in yeah. proper industry. No. Um, it is, it's an incredible opportunity. I am one of the first wave of NCTJ apprentices. Mm. So I spend four days a week at the Evening Standard and then on Fridays I go to college where I'm learning to get a diploma, which after two years... I will get and I will be ready to go into the world of journalism as a junior reporter. Wow. But you're yeah. already in the world of journalism now, Mon- am, Monday to exactly. Thursday. I am, I am. And it's been, um, I've just finished my first year and I've got another year to go. So by the time I've finished, I'll have my diploma and two years work experience. So it's, it really is the perfect, in my opinion, the perfect solution to this problem because we have so many people these days going into university Almost too many, I believe, in my opinion, because we're kind of farming them in and they're coming out and there's nowhere for them to go. But yeah, there's, in my class at the moment, there's three of us at the Independent in Evening Standard. There are BBC apprentices and there are some apprentices in regional newspapers as well. Wow, it's incredibly impressive. What's your view in terms of the spectators' approach and where they're not asking at all into anyone's educational background? In a sense, it it makes Mike's point doubly relevant about not getting a degree because they're not even asking about it. Exactly. No, I think that's excellent. And I think we should probably hold journalists to the same... I mean to the same standards as politicians because with the Conservatives talking about education, I've heard a lot about, oh, the Conservatives are very much white, middle-aged, publicly schooled men and they get to make decisions about state schools when they have got no experience in state schools at all. And then we expect journalists who are very similarly educated to comment on what is happening to our state education when they haven't Mm. been to state schools either. And there's an even stronger argument that publicly funded bodies like the BBC, for example, yeah. or the judiciary mm. uh, should be more, much more reflective of society. For there to be a gap between um, the, the, the reality of the class system in the UK and the reality of the class structure in the BBC, for example, is something that they should be working on. And they are working on. I know that for a fact, having, having been there. I thought what was really interesting about... Um, about this story, though, was that there's this group called the Social Mobility Foundation mm. who are helping to um, sort of matchmake between kids who've got the potential, who are going to get great A-levels, for example, and who've got great GCSEs, but who are on free school meals, in other words, from poorer backgrounds, 
they're sort of putting them in touch with willing employers who are actively seeking people in those categories to rebalance their organisations. And I think that is really good. So next time I hire someone, no matter where I am, I'm going to talk to the Social Mobility Foundation and try and find out a bit more about that. Do you think the kind of first rung on the ladder or the lack of ability to get on there for whether it be you don't have the contacts or you don't have the finances within your family to support you, do you think that is a huge issue in terms of balancing the interests of the applicant and the employer? Because, you know, back in the day, I actually don't support unpaid internships, but I can see the advantage of them because it's, you know, the the employer invests in training and help and then gets some free work. I think where it's been brought into disrepute is the employers have just treated it as free free labour. Yeah. Would you agree, Mike? Yeah, um, I think you're right. In theory, there's uh, nothing wrong with you know making the tea in a radio station uh, in order to learn about radio. The problem is, um, you know, the world's just gone through one of the worst recessions in recent history. Mm. You could make the tea for three or four weeks and probably get by, but if you wanted to, people are taking the piss. Employers are asking them to make the tea for six months and even present radio programs unpaid. Uh, and you can't do that unless you've got rich mummy daddy. That's it. Mike, what was your job at the BBC before you became MD of Radio Player? My last job at the BBC was Deputy Controller at Five Live, so running Radio Five Live. When did you stop doing that? Was it before pre the move to Salford? Exactly, yeah. So the, the station decided to go to the northwest for very sound BBC reasons. Um, and I had just built a house in Kent, so I decided to stay and finish my bathroom. Seems perfectly reasonable. Right, and on that note, I think we'll move to the final topic, which, of course, is uh, I think you might have a few things to say about. Have the public been told enough about the impending FM switchover? Last year, the government backed down from plans to switch off FM by 2015, but it's still widely believed that the government will go completely digital as soon as listening reaches 50%, which could be as soon as 2017. Michael, are we ready for the switchover? And what about those poor grannies driving these old cars who will have to sit in silence? Okay, so before we set out on this, I'm going to have to correct you. Do so. And in fact, tell our listeners why you you know about radio. Tell us about Radio Player as well. Okay, so Radio Player is um, a non-profit organisation co-funded by the BBC and Commercial Radio. And we're here to just try and help make it easier to listen to the radio. So we've got apps on your mobile, we've got apps on your tablet, we've got things you can use on your desktop to play the radio more easily. I declare an interest, I'm a fan and I use your products. As do six to seven million people every month. So we've got a lot of people listening on connected devices, the, you know, these laptops and mobiles and tablets. Um, that is part of what we call digital radio listening alongside what they call DAB, broadcast digital radio. Now, you said several wrong things, actually, in your intro. Sorry about that, but I think you, <laughs> must, have been, think you must have been reading the Daily Mail. There's a lot of... Um, <laughs> disinformation out there about this because it's a very emotive subject now i'm glad it's an emotive subject that means people are loyal to radio to their radios and to listening to the radio in general which is great good for the medium however we're at 37 percent of all listening being digital right now it will probably take us another couple of years to get to 50 percent at that point all the government has said is that they will think about two years from that moment starting to switch off fm in other words, we're at least four to five years away from that moment right now. Mm. And this is nothing different from what happened in TV switchover. You remember all those annoying adverts with Digital, who was this little robot that um, told you to get ready for switchover with the tick mark and all that? It worked very smoothly for digital TV. All that sort of stuff will happen for digital radio as well. There'll be a tick mark, not an annoying character. Well, there is an annoying character. He's called D-Love. He's not a robot. Anyway, there will be 
lots of public information around this and eventually FM could be switched off for certain stations but it's not going to happen tomorrow. Molly, Mike's clearly part of the evil radio establishment that's trying to do these poor grannies out of their radio and have them sit in silence. Do you feel sorry for them? Will someone think of the children? (laughs) Well, I actually have to admit, I did not know that this was happening until I got the email yesterday. I had no idea that this was being planned. So, I mean, if I, a young person with the internet and the news at my fingertips, didn't know, then... I wonder about the poor grannies. How are they going to know? But, what's but all joking happen? aside, though, I mean, we, I mean, you must have a smartphone like we do, and I've yes. got a DAB radio, and I've got Sky at home, so that I've got no shortage whatsoever of listening to radio. I've not listened to the radio on a radio for years. Are, are you the same? Yeah, I am the same. Um, my dad got one of those fancy DAB digital radios, and we listen to Radio Four on the weekend. Um, I think I've got the FM radio on my phone. I don't think we've still got a proper radio in our house anymore so that's what i'm talking about is it organically you guys are consuming your media tv print but also radio on all sorts of devices that mm. is growing as it is for radio for every other medium when it gets to a tipping point at some point we'll need to look at switching some of it off that's all that we're saying what's the frequencies going to be used for is there going to be some 5g service which means i can watch a whole video on my mobile phone where's it going i've no idea i think um there is a plan for very uh, ultra local sort of community radio of which there are many hundreds of stations around the uk mm. to stay on fm while possibly the bigger national services go on to dab only the problem here is that for um commercial radio and for the bbc it's very expensive to transmit on several platforms at once. So transmitting on DAB alongside FM exactly the same signal is very expensive. It's literally double the transmission costs. And transmission costs are one of the biggest fixed costs of running a radio station. What are the demographics of, of this? I mean, for imagine, I, you know, it won't have a problem for me if there's a switch off because I've got Sky at home, I've got various apps on my smartphone, I've got internet access, I'm quite a connected you know, media type, as it mm. were. But I imagine I, I would never be the person that would have a problem with this. Is It, it must skew toward the older generation that are reliant on their FM. Yeah. So um, there are obviously going to be people with much-loved old radios in their bedrooms and their bathrooms. Uh, and if eventually they were to cease to give you Radio 4 or the cricket on long wave, then, yes, that would be a problem. And I think that uh, that's why the government knows that they need to have a long period of consultation and a long period of publicity before anything like that mm. does happen. But we're a long way off that. I was fortunate enough to be at your presentation a couple of weeks ago at Next Radio, where particularly car manufacturers seem to be completely all over the place in this. And you rightly made the point that you know they've got DAB, and yet it's almost impenetrable to navigate a way around a car radio these days because you have to choose which multiplex, whether it's going to be DAB, FM. You can't just say, I want to listen to Radio 4, and it does the legwork for you. Yeah, there's two specific problems in cars. One is that um, car manufacturers are failing to realise that um, radio listening is the most popular thing to do in a car, even when you've got a connected device or you've tethered your smartphone. Uh, People still love proper radio in their cars. Unfortunately, they're starting to kind of hide the radio buttons or make them uh, use different words for it, like media or source. Um, You just need a radio button in a car, full Mm. stop. Stop taking the radio buttons out of cars. That's the first uh, point. The second point is you're absolutely right. And here, the radio industry needs to do something about it. We need to confess to ourselves that we have allowed this to happen on our watch. Radios have become too complicated. Mm. We've allowed, you know, a radio, your dad's radio probably 
you have to switch between DAB and FM and AM first before you can work out where the station that you want is. And that's ridiculous. You should just be able to go, no, I want Radio 4. Thanks very much. Mm. That's how radio used to be, and that's how it can be again. So we're working quite hard at Radio Player to make car radios and home radios that simple again. Molly, what are your radio listening habits? Because, I mean, there's many shows that I listen to now on catch-up on podcasts, the Friday Night Comedy on Radio 4. I've not listened to live because I know I can get Just a Minute, the Now Show and the News Quiz on podcasts. I, I, other than actually Five Live, Wake Up to Money, that's, I literally do wake up to Wake Up yeah. to Money. It's a great show. But do you do you ever just put the radio on like, like people used to do in yesteryear? Um, well, I commute in to London from Essex and every morning me and my mum listen to Chris Evans on BBC Two in the morning. <laughs> we like Chris a lot. Um, and then when she picks me up and we go home at night, we listen to The Archers. And that is the vast majority of radio listening. You know, radio is a live medium, a shared experience by many millions of people. 91% of us in the UK listen to the radio every week, live radio every week. But, Mike, there's, I'll put you in a very real situation. I was lounging in bed yesterday and I could have either listened to six music... Did you have paisley pyjamas on? I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I will not discuss what I was wearing or indeed not wearing. But it's in the public interest. Indeed it's in. No, it's not because I'm a no one. So I had a choice between listening to the actual six music or listening to the official six music playlist on Spotify without any adverts. And mm. I just wondered how big a threat streaming music is because it's exactly the same songs, one without a DJ. It's the same curated content but one gave me more control and no speech do you think streaming platforms like spotify are a threat to radio um actually i don't and they they have been in the states there's a system called pandora in the states which is very similar to spotify and that has been taking huge chunks out of am and fm radio here in the uk we've got a very different content model in radio the bbc is very strong uh, and that means um, commercial radio has had to keep its content very strong as well to compete. So we have very rich content on stations like Six Music and, and everywhere. And what that means is that radio here is about much more than just music. So, yes, there are streaming services, but the evidence we're seeing uh, is that those new streaming services are taking chunks out of what they call owned music, so your own iTunes or um, CD collection. They're not taking chunks out of live radio at the moment. Like, for example, I've not listened to Five Live on AM for ages. I mean, Thank I know it's 909 and 609. What a crap experience that is. That's a great reason why digital radio is good. Now that it's available online, you must have listeners around the world. At least in the old days, you know, Five Live broadcast purely to the UK, whereas now people can listen to it from anywhere, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, prison, yep. uh, you know, in, in Guatemala. Absolutely. And do you have, is there an editorial issue in terms of you want callers from Guatemala want to take part? Well, there are some really nice effects of that, actually. Um, you know, the overnight show on Five Live as the... Uh, Rod Sharp, he's our hero. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and you get a real sense that the daylight is rolling around the world and that people are listening well, he's, all he's not, different... Well, uh, he's not actually in the UK, of course. He broadcasts from Boston, doesn't he? Well, exactly. <laughs> you know, what a weird melange of stuff you get. And you get people calling in from all over the place. You get a sense that it's morning here, night there. And it, it really makes a kind of global community on the, on the radio. That's a great listen. So, yeah, um, I think um, that's had a very beneficial effect on the content in that sense. And because the UK has such brilliant radio... 
we are disproportionately tuned into from around the world. Well, of course, I don't know. I don't know whether you commissioned Dr. Carl to take part in Up All Night, but he broadcasts from Australia, doesn't he? The science yes. segment on Up All Night is absolutely fantastic, and yeah. I got into it via podcasting. Absolutely. So they, they, that program actively reaches out to journalists who are awake in different time zones and gets them onto the radio for largely the UK. So Molly, do you subscribe to Spotify? Would you would you prefer Six Music rather than Six Music's playlist on Spotify if it's the same songs? Um, I do use Spotify. It would completely depend on my mood. I think if I was kind of getting ready for a night out, then I'd probably prefer the playlist. But if I was kind of just reading a book or browsing the internet, then I'd probably go with the DJ. Absolutely. There's some really interesting research which I'd urge you to look at. The RAB, the Radio um, Advertising Bureau, has just done a really interesting piece of research called Audio Now. And they've looked at all listening, including live radio, Spotify, owned music, YouTube, Mm. uh, everything that goes into our ears during the day. Uh, And they've sort of applied a kind of ethnographic study to the whole thing. They've asked people to keep video diaries of how they listen. And it's really revealed the different mood states that you're in and why people use Spotify at one time and live radio at another. And people are almost managing their moods through their music um, in the same way as you self-medicate with alcohol or tobacco. You know, you're kind of, you're thinking, I need to be up now because I've got this really um, boring spreadsheet to do or I'm getting ready for a party. People are self-medicating. Absolutely, they're (laughs) self-medicating with their media, and so that study, that excellent study, has revealed how people are sort of fitting live radio and um, on-demand streaming services into their life for different reasons. But Molly, as a a kind of focus group of one, what do you think the future is for, say, commercial radio? Because given that you mentioned Radio 2 on the way to work and Mm. Radio 4, worryingly, with the arches on the way back, (laughs) we'll overlook that. Um, You you didn't mention any commercial stations. Is is that something you wouldn't consider because of the adverts? Um, I don't enjoy the adverts. I find them quite loud and garish. And once you've kind of got into a song and you're in the kind of music mood, then you get a kind of some really unappealing guy screaming your ear about double glazing <laughs> mm. it does put you off yeah my final question then on the radio front is what about the metrics they must be so much better now because in the old days with radar you just had to survey 50 families and they'd fill in some notional thing about what they were and weren't listening to and now of course human nature is it's, it's not nowhere near measurable whereas now you must through radio play you must log absolutely everything in terms of touch point when people tune in when they tune out what their level of interaction is what kind of level of that extra data what what kind of what does that give you in terms of, of richness of yeah. analysis uh well we we do both still so radar is um uh, a recall-based system, one of the biggest uh, rolling opinion polls in the country on anything. Um, that measures the official kind of radio listening in the UK. That's very, very useful um, on an ongoing basis and will remain the primary currency of the radio industry. But in the background, as you say, we can measure app usage, we can measure listening on browsers and stuff. Mm. And what's, what, what we're using that for is to tell stories and to un- unpack a little bit more about why people listen, how they listen, where they listen. Um, for instance, in Radio Player, we were stunned when we launched uh, three years ago to find um, huge amounts of workplace listening. So the normal peak for radio is uh, just after 8 a.m. in the morning. So that's on a normal radio set. The peak for Radio Player on a on a computer, on a laptop or a desktop computer, is 10 past 9. People are getting into work, firing up their computer, remembering they hate their crappy job, having to do the spreadsheet... <laughs> popping open radio player and listening and then at 5 p.m it goes off a cliff but then 
tablets take over in the evening. And there's a sort of shape to the radio day, which is establishing mm. mobiles. People use our app for much, much shorter periods on mobile, maybe on the bus, maybe uh, walking to work. 15, 20 minutes of snacking, maybe in the morning. Big workplace listening during the day on their desktop. In the evening, it's all about the tablet and much more on-demand listening. Archers on demand, for example. Or live on the drive home. Indeed. Both. So, <laughs> and the omnibus on Sunday. So the, really, so, you're an addict, aren't you? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so to answer your question, the... Um, Data, the rich data we can get from all the connected devices is kind of putting the flesh on the bones of the bigger picture of, of Rajar, which is giving us the, the raw numbers. Final question to you then, Molly. In terms of you're doing your journalism apprenticeship at a print-based newspaper, yes. but do you see your future as a journalist independent of any platform? Because all of the newspapers have their own podcasts now mm. and TV and moving into kind of print-based editions with also with you know on the web, they have to summarise the story in writing. Do you see it as a, a kind of platform independence now that you're a journalist and one minute you could be doing something on air, then writing something? Where do you see yourself going? Well, I certainly hope so. I hope to work across all platforms. Um, six of the apprentices that we have now are on BBC Radio programmes. They're doing part of their apprenticeship as radio production. So um, I'd love to work on radio someday, yeah. I'd love to work everywhere. On that frightfully ambitious <laughs> note, I think we've run out of metaphorical tips. So what we need to do now is just uh, inform our listeners how we, they can stalk you on Twitter and LinkedIn and all that kind of thing. Mike, can we start with your good self? What's your website and your Twitter, etc.? So um, download the Radio Player app if you've got a smartphone, iOS, Android or Windows. Have a look. You can discover 400 stations from across UK radio. Brilliant app. If you're stupid enough to want to follow my witterings on Twitter, it's at Radio Mike Hill um, or at UK Radio Player is Radio Player's Twitter handle. Comprehensive. Molly? <laughs> so um, I'm mainly on Evening Standard Showbiz, where I talk about the Kardashians, which is much more interesting than Are it they sounds. interesting? They are so interesting. In a nutshell, then, why are they interesting? Because I feel like people get this impression that they're kind of airheads, but if you watch Keeping Up With Kardashians, <laughs> then you probably get into it, and they all have their own little personalities and... I just think they're great. Sounds a bit like Stockholm Syndrome to me, really, <laughs> isn't it? So you watch Keeping Up With The Kardashians yes. and The Archers. You can't watch The Archers. No, but you listen, so you, to, the, you listen to The Archers. That, to me, seems a separate demographic, but anyway. <laughs> OK, so how do um, people follow you on Twitter and so follow on? Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Molly underscore writes on Twitter. And the evening standard showbiz is what, in terms of Twitter? In terms of Twitter, it's at standard showbiz. Excellent. And uh, how do people, do you have a blog or anything that people can sign up for? I do for? have a blog. It's www.molly dashwrites.com and that's mainly just me ranting about things that make me angry. Right, well we, we shall follow both <laughs> with interest. Uh, Mike, Molly, thank you ever so much for coming in. If anyone wants to follow me, um, daft enough there, there might be, I'm at Paul W.R. Blanchard and of course you can go to mediafocus.org.uk and leave your email address. The associate producer was Jordan Greenway. I'm Paul Blanchard. Catch you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big thing.